just want to read uh, some words of encouragement. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Uh, just two things that stuck out to me from those uh, verses this week. Just the command uh, to rejoice in the Lord always. It can be so easy uh, for me to get caught up in uh, things that are going on that are maybe stressful, things that I'm worried about, uh, but just that command to rejoice in the Lord. And when we do uh, take the time to praise God for who he is, to rejoice in what he's done for us, um, then it, it, the second part uh, becomes easier, to not be anxious, uh, to go to God with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. And then, and then that promise is, is awesome. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's just uh, let's bow our heads and commit our time to the Lord before we sing a couple more songs. Father, we are just thankful for the opportunity to be in your presence again. Uh, we know that you are always with us, uh, but it's a special thing to uh, gather, to sing praises to you. Uh, Father, just remind our hearts that we need to um, rejoice always. Uh, no matter what's happening in our life, no matter what's going on from day to day, uh, no matter how uh, concerned we are about uh, the state of our country, of our world, or just uh, needs in our own family, that we can rejoice in you every day. We just thank you for Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. So glad you're worshiping with us this morning. I extend a Welcome to each and every one of you. If you're here this morning and this is your first time at Creekside in person, I invite you to stop by the welcome table out there and we'll have a gift for you. If you have a bulletin, uh, there's an extra flap in the bulletin. You can put that in the offering box, which is on the table as you come in the entryway and just remind those who are part of a regular church family. Uh, that's where we're collecting the offering now, so please be apprised of that. One little announcement. Uh, I'd sent out, or had Megan sent out an email about helping someone move. Uh, Hank was asking for some help this Wednesday. Uh, that's off. Uh, you'll be updated later when that's going to happen if uh, you can come and help at another time. So that's just uh, housekeeping details. I'd like you to pray with me if you would. Father, we come to you uh, this morning. And what a, what a blessed reminder uh, Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. That sin had left a crimson stain, and he, the Lord Jesus, washed it white as snow. And I just ask that, Father, as we uh, enter and are in part of this Advent season, this season in which we uh, remember uh, the first Advent of Christ, uh, that you would tune our hearts to praise you, to honor you, and to worship you, that we would come to more fully appreciate 
the truths of your word. And I ask this morning as we explore a little deeper uh, the book of Matthew, uh, that your spirit would take these truths and work them into our hearts. And I know that there is stuff here that is just challenging me, and I know that I need to uh, be more in tune with what your word has to say and to live my life more completely in light of it. And I pray that each of us would, by your grace and your glory, take your word, open our hearts, our minds to your truth for your sake and for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Won't you, if you will, just for a moment, in your own mind, don't answer this out loud. Have you ever had an invitation received an invitation, and you just like, this is too good to pass up, this invitation. I remember several years ago when uh, receiving an invitation to go on a Canadian fly-in fishing trip with my son and my father, and the three of us were able to make it uh, to this, uh, this fishing trip, and it was a very memorable trip indeed. It was one of those things that you just once-in-a-lifetime thing, so we took it, and we went, and we were so glad that we did. It was a great time for all of us, and we caught lots of fish, and it doesn't make me want to go fishing anywhere but there, okay? So it's like fishing for crappies doesn't, doesn't cut it after you catch 38-inch uh, northerns and 21- or 26-inch uh, walleyes, so it doesn't really make it much fun to catch a little crappie. Anyway, so there are invitations, but this morning I want to talk about the best invitation ever given. There's a one invitation that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30, that is better than any invitation and you and I have received, ever have received. Our best invitation pales in comparison. So what we see in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30, is that Jesus is laying out for us, employs these three tactics to dispel the doubt that's been kind of rumbling as we began chapter 11 and also to compel actual belief in him as the Messiah that would result in our rest. But he has these three tactics and the last one is this invitation that's too good to pass up. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles or on your device to Matthew chapter 11 verses 25 through 30 and I'm going to read the text and then we'll look at these three tactics that Jesus uses. Matthew 11:25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In some ways, a familiar passage. At least the last two or three, two verses are very familiar to us. But what we see here, first of all, and by way of dispelling doubt and providing us with encouragement to, to come and believe in Christ, is a comfort in God's electing activity. Notice the text begins, at that time. At what time? At the time the opposition was increasing, Jesus was not discouraged. What does he do? He gives praise to God. 
He praises God in the midst of the discouragement. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He found great comfort. And we should too. In God's sovereign activity in redeeming people. And what is praise? Praise is acknowledging someone's worth and value. It's honoring them. I think it was last May, Gene stepped out, but Gene Arn, our resident uh, senior here, is, uh, turned 101 last May. I think it's May 5th or 6th. Well, you know, we honored Gene, you know. We held him up and esteemed him highly. I mean, that's, that's just amazing that God has been gracious to him and give him life for all that time. Jesus says, I praise you, Father. I praise you, Father. Now, Father is a term of affection, of endearment. Abba, Father, Father. And we're going to see it several times in the text. And so he says, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Well, he is honoring his Father, term of infection, uh, affection, as Lord. Well, what is Lord? Well, that's a master. That's a ruler. <laughs> if you live in California, it's Gavin Newsom. Uh, he's the, the, the master. He's the, the dictator. He's the ruler. Well, Jesus says of his Father, he is the master over heaven and earth. And that Lord of heaven and earth stresses the fact of his sovereignty, his supremacy, his majesty over all of creation. He's a sovereign. He's utmost. He deserves our utmost reverence, our utmost respect. I thought of Isaiah chapter 66, uh, verses 1 and 2, where uh, Isaiah says, at the end of Isaiah, he says, thus Says the Lord, he says, uh, uh, you got it up on your screen, yeah. This is what the Lord, sovereign Lord says, heaven is my throne. The earth is, now think about this, heaven is my throne. That's not even the house, that's just the throne. The earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you will build for me? (laughs) It's like, okay. If heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, that's not even the house, uh, uh, then where is a house you would build for me that would be big enough to contain me? He says, where is a place that I may dwell, he says. Uh, The answer would be nowhere. Uh, Couldn't do it. And he says, for my hands, by my hands, all these, I made all these things, and thus all these things came into being. But to this one will I look. He was humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. The God of the universe who sits on the throne, which is in heaven, and the earth is his footstool, says, I'm going to look at this person only, the person who is humble and contrite of spirit. But this is how he is the sovereign Lord over all of it. Now, what caused Jesus to honor the Father, Lord of heaven and earth? Well, he says in the text that you have hidden these things, (laughs) The Father determines who receives the truth. That's what caused him to honor him as his Father. You are the one. Hidden what things? He's hidden these things, these things about Jesus. The identity of Jesus. The call and the need for repentance in order to be made right with God. He has hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. Now we saw in Matthew chapter 9 verses 11 through 12 that uh, it was the Pharisees, the scribes, the the arrogant, the self-sufficient, the self-righteous people who would be designated as the wise and the intelligent people. These are the people that remain spiritually blind. Remember back in Matthew 7? 
Many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Broad is the gate and the way is wide that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. But to the babes, he says, God reveals the truth. This is verse 25, end of it. But to the babes, God reveals the truth. Jesus rejoiced, excuse me, as should we in the fact, I'll get it yet, in the fact that God calls those who are not uppity. God calls those who are the, the foolish. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Those who are foolish. Those who are not so wise. Those who are not so uppity and who are not honored by the world. No. God calls the foolish. He calls the weak. He calls the base. They receive and respond in faith to the message of Christ. Those are the people that get the information. I remember for several years, uh, we invested, uh, the church that I served and my family personally invested in a a church over in Eastern Europe, a church plant. We traveled there many times and we we did camps and we uh, shared the gospel and there were like, there was hardly any fruit, visible fruit. Like there's hardly anybody who actually came to faith in Christ. I say, well, it's a waste of time, right? discouraging not if we keep Jesus perspective in view what is Jesus perspective that God is the one who reveals these things God is the one who's in charge not if we join Jesus in rejoicing that God is gracious to some and by God's grace uh, a couple of years ago uh, there were some people that went over there and by wow Some genuine conversions took place some people genuinely converted to faith in Christ it was amazing praise God for it We don't get discouraged because only a few. And we don't get discouraged because not everybody. Because this is where everybody goes. You see, you read this verse, verse 25. You have hidden. He praises God because he's hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, revealed them to babes. Well, so isn't God unjust? How could God do that? Hide it from some people. Well, let me ask you this. Who deserves God's redemptive love. Read Romans chapter 3. Begin with verse 10 and go on following. Just write it down. No one deserves God's love. Nobody. That, that any are saved is a powerful argument against God's injustice and is a wonderful demonstration of His mercy and His grace. That He would save anybody is amazing. Some of you Listen, and all around Iowa, I mean, even when we lived in Northwest Iowa, we listened to WHO 1040, you know, the clear channel voice of the Midwest, 50,000 clear watts, right? 50,000 watt channel. And uh, you say, wow, they have, uh, now they're part, thanks, Brandon, they're uh, part of this uh, iHeartRadio, correct? Now, some of you heard it, the iHeartRadio, call in 12 times a day, they're going to give away $1,000. Thanks. They're going to give away $1,000. Well, isn't that unfair? I mean, because, you know, if you call in, uh, you're just putting a, a lottery about who gets picked, right? And so not everybody wins, so that's unfair. No, it's not unfair. It's absolutely gracious that anybody would win the $1,000 because nobody deserves $1,000 in the same way. 
It's not unjust that God would shower his redemptive mercy upon anyone. It's not not unjust that God would reveal and hide. It's merciful that he would reveal it to anyone. And so that's the thing that gives Jesus great joy. And we see God's graciousness punctuated when we look at verse 26. He says, yes, Father. There again, there it is, second time. Father. Yes, Father. For thus it is your will, it is well-pleasing in your sight. A couple things I want you to remember. It's God's pleasure that any would be saved. Wow. God delights in it. God's, God, that God would pardon those who deserve punishment is a merciful action. And that, that grace would come to anyone should really actually warm our hearts. And it should literally, and it doesn't for me often as it should, should loosen my lips <laughs> to say, wow, guess what? God wants you. He, he, would, he would welcome you into his, into his kingdom. It should loosen our lips. So it's God's pleasure, but it's also God's prerogative. Okay? Prerogative. Okay? To say the word correctly, I think that's right. It's his prerogative. Notice this, in your sight. So God's the one who chooses. So it's his mercy indicates that it's up to him. The ESV translates the end of verse 25, for such was your gracious will. Now, if God is so gracious, how should those of us who have received this mercy respond? Because you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. None of us deserves it. But if we have received it, how should we respond? First of all, with gratitude. And I've quoted this verse many times with these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us, believers. Having considered this, that one died for all, therefore all died. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Gratitude. And fortitude. Hey, God wants people to be, come to himself. And so I'm going to keep spreading the word. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So let's keep proclaiming the word of God. This gospel, regardless of the response, remain faithful in sharing because God is responsible for saving. We are faithful in sharing because God's duty and responsibility is in saving people. So the first tactic that he uses to dispel doubt and to inspire belief and compel us to believe that brings rest to our soul is that his electing activity. We we rest in his life. Then secondly, we're confronted with Jesus' true identity. If we look at verse 27... Uh, actually 25 through 27, and I included it, and you'll see why for a moment. But there are indicators of Jesus' true identity, and we learn at least three ways in which his identity is revealed to us. First of all, his equality with the Father. Text says in verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things handed over to me by my Father. Notice, if you looked at verse 25, the word Father appears once, verse 26, once, verse 27, three times. This is indisputable evidence that he's claiming to be equal with the Father. That he's claiming to be God. He's equal with the Father. 
Now, I might not be able to get to all these, but if, if you looked at, and we're going to see up on the screen, John uh, 5.18, okay? And it basically, uh, John 5.18 is basically saying that Jesus was crucified because he claimed to be, that he called God his Father, making himself equal with God. See, the Jews at the time understood. If you said God is your father, that means you're his son. And if you're his son, then you're equal with the father. And in John chapter 10, verses 30 and 33, the same thing. Jesus says, I and the father are one. So Jesus is claiming when he uses the term father that he is equal with the father. Now, it says in the text that begins with, in verse 27, that all things have been handed over to me by my father. What has been handed over to Jesus? Authority. Power, knowledge, everything. You know Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. All authority has been given to me. Authority, authority for what? Authority for everything. He has it all. Uh, in John chapter 5, verse 19, you're just going to look at the last part of verse 19. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also in the same way. And then he goes on to talk about what things he's done. Actually, Jesus is there at creation. We know in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. We know that from John chapter 1, verses 1 through uh, 18. We also know from John chapter 5, verses 19 and following, that he was there. He helped, He raises the dead. He judges people. He knows everything that the Father is going to do. He knows the plan of God. He is God. That's what he's saying. And he was God on earth. He wasn't just the manifestation, uh, just the, the um, he was the manifestation of God. He wasn't simply the mouthpiece of God. Some people say, well, you know, he was just talking. He was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet. No, he wasn't just a mouthpiece for God. He was the manifestation of God. He was actually God among us. And we looked at this in the first service in John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus, he has revealed him, John 1, 18. He has revealed him. He's made him known. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, God, after he spoke in the prophets long ago, uh, in many, uh, in many uh, fashions and in many ways, uh, I better read it here, in portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created all things. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. The Bible never says that Jesus was a prophet. Jesus never said, I'm just a prophet. He says, I'm the Son of God. And which means, I am God. He was equal with the Father. Uh, some of you have been to Living History Farms. It's been a while since I've been there. But you go to Living History Farms and you see these people dressed up in their, like, their 1800s farm. And then they have the 1900s farm. And I remember going there as a, as a, a young boy. And some lady was sitting in the 1800s farm. And she was stirring this pot and he says what are you making lye soap or something and she looked at me like I was like from a different planet how did you know that well yeah, I mean I'm uh, my grandma you know was, you got nothing on my grandma you know and uh, they, they, they're acting right they, these people are acting it out Jesus wasn't acting he wasn't putting on a show he was the real deal he was God in the flesh it says in John chapter 1 verse 14 we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten, full of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was God in the flesh. It wasn't an imitation. Again, 
We looked at this in the first service in John chapter 14. Philip, he said to Philip, Jesus said to Philip, if you have seen me, what? You have seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is equal with the Father. So we see his equality with the Father in verse 27. In verse 27, we see his intimacy with the Father. Jesus and the Father enjoyed a unique relationship. Notice what it says. He says, my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he reveals him. So, and I quote, they possessed an exclusive, intimate, reciprocal knowledge of each other. An exclusive, intimate, reciprocal knowledge of each other in a way that nobody else could. Some of you know this, some of you don't. My wife is an identical twin. And it is scary what she and her sister know about each other. True story. Last year, on their birthday, my wife, who's not a big carrot cake fan, uh, she likes it, but not, it's not her favorite, had a craving for carrot cake. And so we made a carrot cake on her birthday, and she's eating carrot cake, and she got a picture from her sister eating carrot cake. 500 miles away, without any knowledge, there they go. So they have this exclusive, intimate, reciprocal knowledge of each other. And God the Father and God the Son have this exclusive, intimate, reciprocal knowledge of each other that is beyond the pale. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 29, Jesus makes it very clear. Uh, I think we have that. Do we have that, John? Yeah. It says, I do, I do know him because I am from him and he sent me. I know him because he sent me. Jesus was equal with the Father, he was intimate with the Father, and he had a unique responsibility that the Father had given to him. Verse 27, the end, he says, Son knows the Father, the Father knows the Son, and anyone to whom the Son will reveal him. What's Jesus' purpose? To reveal the Father to us. He comes to reveal the Father to us. Um, Dr. Turner, in his commentary, put it this way. He says, according to the text, uh, uh, Jesus bluntly yet beautifully teaches that the saying, the saving knowledge of God the Father comes only through the electing revelation of Jesus, the exclusive mediator of salvation, which basically saying that it is Jesus who reveals the Father to us so that we can be saved. That's his, that's his purpose. Nobody can come to a saving knowledge of God the Father apart from the Son. That's his role and his responsibility. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 and 6, uh, you can read it there that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Some of you know and we look in, it's interesting, amazing that in first service we looked at these verses as well. John 14 6. Jesus says what? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Only one way. Only one person. Only one path. That's Jesus. In ancient Rome, at least in Italy, where Rome is located, all the roads led to Rome. Rome was the spoke. 
All the roads led to Rome. Many today say that there are all kinds of ways to get to God. There's all kinds of ways that you can find to get to God, but the Scripture says there's only one way to get to God, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. All religions don't lead to God. Jesus says, no, there's only one way to God. And the question I have for all of us this morning is, have you found the way? Are you on that way? Have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus? Do you understand that you are a person who is in rebellion against God? And that because of that, you deserve His punishment and His wrath. But God in His love sent Jesus who died on the cross and paid the debt that you and I deserve to pay. So that if we would put our faith and trust in his death on our behalf, in his resurrection, as proof of his victory over sin and death, we would be saved. That's the message of the gospel. That's what is hidden from the arrogant, self-sufficient, self-righteous people and open to those of us who are weak and foolish and not such a big deal. And it's open to you if you'll accept what, what he's done on the cross. And if you haven't accepted it, my challenge is to do so. And it's not a big deal. It's not a hocus-pocus thing. Just express your faith in prayer and say, Lord, I've been chasing my tail for a long time, and I've been trying to live my life on my own, and it's not working out very well, and I acknowledge that I'm running from you, and I'm playing God, and I just want to repent and turn from my sin and trust in Christ as my Savior. Now, something like that. You don't have to say those exact words. God knows your heart, That's what he's concerned about. And if you are a child of God, then let us proclaim this message. Especially at Christmas, right? You know, drive around, got the Christmas trees, the light is is Jesus. Let's proclaim it, this marvelous salvation. And what Christ alone offers and provides, he gives us an invitation to accept. That's the, the third tactic that he employs, which is that best invitation, we are invited to experience God's mercy. Notice in verses 28 and 29, two parallel commands, okay? Two parallel commands, each which bring out a different nuance of what it means to experience rest. Come to me and take my yoke. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is a drawing on the Old Testament Sabbath, where they rested from their work. Serves as a picture of spiritual rest from wrath, which we should experience because of our sin. Come to me. How do we get to know? And we talked about this in the first service. I didn't share this because I'm going to share it now. How do we get to know the Father? The the Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father, and He reveals Him to whoever He wants. The Son reveals the Father. We get to know the Father through the Son. That's what He says. Come to me is God the Son inviting us to be reconciled with God the Father through Him. When I'm sitting back in my study, and if Megan is here, uh, you have to go through her to get to me. Okay. To get to the Father, we have to go through the Son. That's what Jesus says. And who is he inviting to come? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And literally, it means those who are exhausted from their work. 
When I thought of this, I thought all of our uh, emergency and healthcare workers and our police and school teachers and these people are just frazzled. They don't know that they're in person or out of person. They're every day. The people getting sick on the job so other people having to do double shifts. They're freaked out because they don't want to expose people to COVID and they don't want to get COVID and it's just they're exhausted. They're weary and heavy laden. And Jesus says come to me but he's not talking about the physically exhausted. He's Speaking figuratively to all who are spiritually burdened. And now, how are we spiritually burdened? Think about this. Well, the first way that we're spiritually burdened is the weight of unrepentant sin. Guilt. Shame. I mean, people are living in sin and they're weighed down by their guilt and their shame. And I thought of Psalm 32, verses 2 through 4, and I want you to look at Psalm 32. This is a beautiful passage of what happens when we repent and confess, and it's a description of the weight of sin upon us. The psalmist says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For the day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality failed as with the dry heat of summer. That's weight. It's a burden of sin. That's one of the burdens that we have is unrepentant sin. Guilt and shame weighs us down. And then there's also the weight of trying to, to find the satisfaction for our soul. Oh, I just need to work harder. I need to make more money. I need to have more possessions. I need more power. I need more privilege. This is what we see the world chasing. Power, privilege, possessions. Oh, then I'll be full. There's those weights that weigh down the soul. And Jesus says to every stranger to the forgiveness found in Christ, here's the answer. Come to me. Come to me. Now, come and I will give you rest is not an invitation for a vacation. Okay? Uh, No. It's an invitation for a right relationship with God. And he'll give us rest in our soul, okay? Not the absence of any struggles, but reconciliation from God. This is Hebrews chapter uh, 4, verses 2 and 3. It says, Just as they also did, but the word they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united with those who listened with faith. For we who have believed and enter, enter that rest... Just as he said, as I swore in my anger, they certainly shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. We can enter into rest, which is peace with God. If we're burdened by the guilt and shame of our sin, we confess our sin and repent and trust Christ, then we have the rest. We're no longer subject to God's wrath. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not anguish, not burden. We have peace with God. With God. That's what he promised us. Those who believe the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, have entered rest. And they're not weighed down by the burden of guilt and shame. They're not trying to chase after all these things that would provide satisfaction. We're also weary and heavy laden because we're trying to do religion and be righteous on our own, in our own power. That's what the people in Jesus' day mostly struggled. Well, they struggled with the other one too, but they struggled with Hey, we got all the rules, right? We've got the Old Testament law. We've got the Pharisaic traditions. We've got the commandments. We've got to keep this stuff. We've got to keep this stuff. We've got to go to church, you know, modernize it. 
You got to go to church every time the doors are open. You got to read your Bible every day. You got to pray for three hours a day, just like Martin Luther did. Uh, you got to do all this stuff, and if you aren't, then you're not spiritual, and if you're not spiritual, then you need to work harder, and you need to work harder, and then you need to get more kudos from God, and then if you work hard enough, then God will accept you. That's not true. You get weighed down by all this stuff, heavy laden and burdened with all that stuff. Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus chastised the uh, scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses and they tie up heavy burdens and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them as so much as a finger. I grew up in a church where, you know, we had Sunday morning church, we had Sunday night church, we had midweek services, we had every time the church doors were open, boy, you expected to be there and you stayed the whole time. You know, and there were certain requirements you had to do, do this, do this, you had to do the jumping jacks, all the hoops you got to jump through, and then maybe you'll be good enough. Man, it was like a circus. They couldn't juggle enough. Keep all the balls in the air. And then they throw another ball at you. Oh, way down. And Jesus says, come to me. Come into a relationship with me, all you who are weary, all you who are burdened by the guilt and shame of your sin, all of you who are chasing after you, chasing your tail, trying to find satisfaction, all of you who are trying to do this religious, make it on your own garbage, this work salvation, and I will give you rest. I like rest. Not a vacation. Not a vacation. But peace in our soul. And then he says this, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That's the second nuance of this command. Take my yoke, which is the effort that's expended in order to live in obedience to God. My yoke. He says, take my yoke, put it on you. You see, the burden of guilt and shame for our sin and the weight of this self-improvement type lifestyle is set in stark contrast to the demanding but ultimately liberating chance to take his yoke and get in the yoke with him, the relationship with Christ. You see, Christ directs us in our walk. Take my yoke. Help me. I'll help you live as I want you to live instead of you trying to do it on, on your own. He enables us to do what we can't do on our own so that when we come to Christ and surrender to him, then I want to go to church and fellowship with the saints. I want to serve God. I don't have to. I don't, not, not in order to earn God's favor, but I can do it because God is enabling me through Christ to do it. Why would I do this? Why would I turn from my paganism? Why would I turn from the rat race of trying to please God in my own power? Why would I turn from my sinful and enjoyable lifestyle, quote unquote? Not really, but you know, I mean, uh, actually, sin is pleasurable. Don't get that wrong. I mean, it, it's not right but it can be pleasurable and God says why would you turn from that he gives us three reasons in the text come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and what and I will give you rest he says for take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am what I am gentle and humble of heart what kind of master you want to serve I worked as a pharmacy technician when I was going to seminary, one of the jobs, many jobs that I had when I was in seminary, and I worked at a private pharmacy. And uh, the pharmacist was a hard man. 
He was not gentle. He was harsh. He was not humble. He was proud. A very unpleasant experience. When I was in high school, I worked for a farmer. He was a big-time farmer. But he was very gentle, and he was very humble. And it was a good experience for me, for the most part. Which master do I want to serve? Jesus says, come to me, all you are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Why? For I am meek and lowly of heart. What master do you want to serve? Jesus says, you can serve me. Reason number two, and you shall find rest for your soul. <laughs> and the, the tie is to Jeremiah chapter 6, where God says to the people of Israel who are about to be uh, in, in slaved in Babylon, look, here, if you repent, you will find rest. That's the idea. If we repent and turn from our sin and trust in Christ, we will find rest. We think we're chasing after rest now, but no, you'll find rest. Our souls, as the quote goes, our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. What does this rest mean? It means peace with God. I'm no longer at odds with God. And I said, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, I'm I'm at peace with God. Because when I'm living in sin, I'm in conflict with God. It's not a good thing to be in conflict with God because he's going to win, you know. Secondly, it doesn't just mean peace with God. It means purpose in my life. I remember sitting in the pew when I was 12 years old and hearing the gospel of Christ for the one of many times I'd heard it, but it, it stuck with me that I wanted to live a life that extended and it transcended just, okay, uh, Going up, getting a career, having uh, two children, uh, two cars, and living in a house. I wanted something that transcended, that was eternal of value. And the Bible says and that God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. And that God was in the world reconciling us to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We have this ministry of reconciliation. I have part of something bigger than me. And you are too if you're a child of God. That's amazing. We have peace with God. We have purpose in life. And we have a promise for the future, a blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for you. Wow, that's good stuff. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's number three. Following Christ is not less demanding. Okay, it's not less demanding. But it's way, way less draining. (laughs) It's not less demanding, it's just way less draining. And it's far more satisfying than anything the world could offer. And so that's, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart. You know, I learned the hard way. Uh, <clears throat> the proper ingredients to make a pie. Crust, particularly. Uh, sugar doesn't go in a pie crust, just so you, so you, don't, so you know. Okay? Uh, salt, flour, uh, pretty much does it. Uh, yeast, well no, salt and flour, uh, a little bit, and some water. 
Uh, I put sugar in a pie crust, okay? See, you put sugar in a pie, and then you put sugar in a pie crust, you got a lot of sugar. And then you put ice cream on the pie, and you have major uh, sugar overload, okay? So I learned the hard way about uh, what ingredients go into pie. Jesus gives us the ingredients to dispel our doubt and to compel us to believe. He says, look, God's in charge of who's coming into the kingdom. He says, I, Jesus, I am the Son of God, and I am the only way. Come. Come to me, he says, all you labor heavy laden. So if you're here and listening or online this morning, Jesus is inviting everyone who has never put their faith in Christ to turn from the burden of your guilt, the burden of your shame, the chasing after your tail, trying to find satisfaction on your own, this whole myth of being religious. No, Jesus says, I don't want you to be religious. I'm inviting you into a relationship. And he's doing that. All he says is, come. Come, trust in Christ today. And if you're here this morning and listening online, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I think there are a few things that we can take away. First of all, I rejoice that God has chosen anyone. And I rejoice even more that He's chosen me. Not because of who I am or what I've done. It's, it's because of Him. I rejoice in that. And we rely on God's power to work to help us walk in obedience. He gives us the power to do, enables us to do what we can't do on our own. We reiterate God's message because I don't know who else out there God has chosen, but God does, and so I just keep repeating the message. And if they don't respond correctly, it doesn't matter. I just keep sharing because God knows who they are. We rest in God's power to draw the people He wants to. And so, as we, as we think about ending, and we think about taking bread, and we take about, think about taking the cup, Jesus' invitation for us to experience God's mercy, it gains credibility because he went to the cross to purchase our pardon, and he rose from the dead to prove he had victory over sin and death. This is not just hocus-pocus stuff. He actually did something to prove the credibility of the invitation that he gives to join us. His sacrifice in Calvary is remembered as we take the bread and the cup. What he did to sacrifice for us. You see, rest with God comes only through reconciliation. What's reconciliation? A relationship of hostility is transformed into a relationship of peace and goodwill. If we're sinful people, we're in a relationship of hostility with God. But through faith in Christ, we transformed into a relationship of peace and goodwill. Rest comes through reconciliation. Reconciliation comes only through repentance of our sin and faith in Christ. And so, Christ satisfied the wrath of God, hostility towards us. He took upon himself the wrath of God so that we could know life in God. So that we took his life, he took our death, and we can be his children. Every believer, I just want you to take a moment or two to reflect on what God has done before you take the bread and the cup. Get right with God. If you don't know Christ, my challenge is to put your faith and your trust in Christ today. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek, gentle, and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that those of us who have found rest for our soul in Christ would 
rejoice in that and appreciate it more fully. I pray that those who have never put their faith or their trust in Christ, who are listening this morning, would turn from their sin and trust in you and find the rest that their soul is longing for. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Say a word of thanks for the offering. Father, we praise you for the opportunity uh, just to take your yoke upon us. Father, to rest, to find that rest that Jesus so freely gives. Lord, if there's anyone who is um, holding back um, from entering into that rest, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would um, just give them the conviction of heart and the opportunity to lay those burdens down to take to take that rest that jesus offers and that forgiveness from sin and father as we take uh, the opportunity to give back to you today we pray that we would do so with uh, joyful and generous hearts uh, remembering what you have done for us uh, we praise you and thank you in jesus name amen <laughs>